Now this morning I invite you to return with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. Uh, This is the last week of Jesus' journey to the cross. And you may remember that the authorities of the temple uh, had, uh, were, were, were faced with a dilemma at the coming of Jesus. Having entered the temple with some degree of force, overturning the tables and cleansing the temple area, coming with a degree of force and authority, uh, they found themselves having to confront Jesus and demanding an answer. In essence, last week, as we saw, they asked him, who do you think you are coming in like this? And as we saw last week, for them, it was a question that really kind of backfired in their face. It was one of those cigars they lit, and it blew up. It's kind of like something that happened to a friend of mine in Chicago one time. He was driving on the Eisenhower Expressway, and he was passed by a car uh, in a rush, and he was struck with a case of uh, road rage. And so he decided to speed up. He hit the gas, and he was muttering to himself, who does that guy think he is? Well, it turned out uh, the guy actually did know who he was. He was an undercover policeman and ended up pulling my friend off to the side of the road and asked him, who do you think you are? You know, backfire. And by the end of the exchange, in verse 8 we have in Luke, 8, in Luke 20, Jesus had turned the tables on these rulers, and he had given them enough of a clue in order to be able to answer the question that had asked him. Who do you think you are? He had given them the clue. I know who I am, and you will know who I am as well. But he left it for them to make the call. In verse 8, he says, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. In essence, to say, you guys now have to make the call from all the clues that are in your possession. In essence, Jesus had made it clear. Don't expect anyone else to draw your spiritual conclusions about Jesus, who is your Lord. Don't even allow Jesus to force that conclusion on you himself. It is your responsibility to make up your mind. And it's a personal decision. But even more, it is a decision that is fraught with consequence. I like using that word. I was so happy to put it in the text. Fraught with circumstance. Because this is really an issue of a matter of life and death, eternal life and eternal death. Verse 9, he now shifts this decision from the rulers now to the larger audience. Look at verse 20, or verse 9 of chapter 20. He, Jesus, went on to tell the people this parable. Now the word went on actually then connects his next words with the question that he had left hanging in the air in verse 8. I'm not going to tell you by what authority. You're going to have to make up your mind. But in verse 8 he goes, now let me tell you a story. While you're connecting the dots about who I am, let me tell you this story and add some momentum to your thoughts. Now, normally, the the stories that Jesus told required some some thinking. Many of them, as parables, were, were actually somewhat difficult for the crowd to figure out. The stories had familiar elements that could be distracting because people could say, oh, yeah, I can remember these elements in my own life. But the meaning and the impact took a little bit of reflection for it to actually hit home. It's almost like if if this has ever happened to you, you've driven behind a car and you look and you see vanity license plates and and you see numbers and letters, but you can't quite make them out until, you know, all of a sudden it catches you and you think, oh, okay, I finally got the point. I saw a license plate one time, and I'm using that with my grandkids now, and it just simply said, 
it was four letters, U-R-A-Q-T, five letters, U-R-A-Q-T. And I'm sitting there going, what is that? Racked, racked, you are, oh, I am, you know. It, it takes a while for you to be able to catch those things. I'm saying that to my grandchildren as well. But you get an idea that sometimes these parables put out familiar elements and you knew they conveyed a message, but it would take some sort of thought for you to be able to say, oh, I get it. But the story that we have here <laughs> isn't like a time bomb. It is as blunt as a sledgehammer because it is possessed with utter clarity. As one writer has put it, this parable is as brilliant and as shocking as a shaft of lightning. So let, let's read the story once again. Luke chapter 20, verse 19, 9 through 16. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent servants to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat the servant and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, and that one they beat as well. And they treated shamefully, and they sent him away empty-handed as well. He sent a, a, still a third, and they wounded him, and they threw him out. And then the owner of the vineyard said, what am I going to do? I, I'll send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they'll respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. Then he asked the question. And remember last week we were talking about the rabbinic process of asking questions? He says, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? And he provides a bit of an answer. He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now let me just clarify the images that are in this parable. The owner of the vineyard is, in fact, God himself. And the vineyard, well, there was no question in the mind of the people who heard this, he's talking about Israel. In fact, the vineyard was the national symbol for Israel. And in fact, was sculpted as a rich carving around the door which led from the porch of the temple into the holy place. It was a carving of, of, of vines and grapes. It was a symbol of Israel. In fact, that carving that was in the temple, that, that, was, that was behind Jesus as he's telling this parable, where they could look up and they could see this carving, it was 70 cubits high, branches and tendrils and leaves, all plated in gold, and the bunches of grapes were made of jewels that sparkled in the sunlight. He was talking about Israel. God's chosen people being the vineyard. So you can kind of get a picture for the background of this story. A man planted a vineyard, and the people understood what he was talking about. The relationship that the Lord had taken great pains to provide an environment for life and fruitfulness for his people. And God intended great things to grow in this spiritual vineyard. And they were standing there in the vineyard listening to the story. But the care of this vineyard was given to some farmers, as we read in the story. The farmers, quite obviously, represent the spiritual leadership of Israel, the stewards, the ones who were to take care of this garden. And you can imagine the expectation given to these farmers to cultivate a people with rich radiance that would reflect the glory of God and be a light to the world. That was the purpose of the spiritual leadership expected by the farmers. 
But according to the story, the plan soured. Not in a day, mind you, but as you read in the story, over time. Now, I don't know that much about gardening, but according to experts, it takes approximately five years for a vineyard to mature to a point where it can, in fact, produce a meaningful harvest. And add to that the writer in Jewish law that allowed a person to claim ownership of a property if they could prove consistent occupancy of that of at least three years, three years worth of possession of that property. So you have five years for the property, for the, for the vineyard to grow to maturity, three years before a person could be able to declare possession of that, and what you have here is a plausible legal case that exposes what I have on your sermon outline or point here, what I call the psychology of unbelief. Now, I am not a legal scholar, but according to my studies, that three-year claim to ownership did not apply to those who were, by contract, renters. Not squatters, but renters. Didn't apply to them, the three-year contract. You see that that, that status in verse 9. The farmers did not own the vineyard, but over the years, they simply assumed the rights of ownership. And their psychology in regard to the vineyard, was built on self-interest, self-ownership, self-rule. Isn't that a great way to be able to describe the image that most of us have about ourselves and our lives and all that was within our purview? I am the captain of my fate. I am the master of my soul. Think of the things that appeal to you every day in the advertisements you hear. Have it your own way. Do yourself a favor. You owe it to yourself. You deserve a break today. Look out for number one. Let's admit it. The human heart can be a very selfish beast, fiercely protective of what it sees as its own territory. Oh, we can acknowledge that there may be a God out there, but let's get real. I don't mind God at a distance but I'm my own God right here in this field that I own. So thank you very much. God, stay out there. I'm right here. Wilbur Reese once wrote a very sarcastic creed. He said, put it this way. He said, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or to disturb my sleep, but, but just enough of, to equal a warm cup of milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I, I don't know, want enough of him to make me love or serve anyone else. I, I want ecstasy, I, not transformation. I want the warmth of a womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. <laughs> That's it, no more. I want God at a distance. I don't want him up close or personal. And certainly, I do not want him make any claim on my life, even though I know it's rightfully his. And yet, as we read in the Bible in Psalm 100, verse 3, know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us. And we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Is it any wonder, then, that we go on to read in verse 10. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. 
But the tenants beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. Not just once, but again in verse 11 and again in verse 12, three times he sends a representative only to find each one of them being beaten and turned away empty-handed. Now, once again, there is nothing subtle about this parable. The people knew that he was referring to the way the prophets had been treated in the past every time God had sent them to Israel. Over the centuries, God had sent his servants to call his people to account only to find themselves, these prophets, rejected by their people. Elijah was driven into the wilderness alone in 1 Kings 19, verses 1 through 5. Isaiah, according to the tradition, was cut in two, sawn in two. Zechariah was stoned to death. John the Baptist, who is viewed as the last of the Old Testament prophets, found himself beheaded. We read of the treatment of these servants sent to the vineyard in Hebrews chapter 11. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and in goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them, and they wandered in the deserts, mountains, and in caves, and found themselves in holes in the ground. Now, can you imagine, with this in mind, the reaction that the story he's giving is beginning to stir (laughs) in the crowd as Jesus is speaking? Can you just picture the, 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 the rulers beginning to draw their robes up tight, the veins beginning to pop out on their foreheads, their teeth, you can almost hear them beginning to grind because all of this is beginning to hit real close to home. And then Jesus raised it past the boiling point in verse 13. He says, Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And so they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. Within just a matter of a few days, this very thing would happen to Jesus Christ. But in the mind of the religious reader, leaders, as they looked at him, it was already taking place right then. Because if you go back to chapter 19, verse 47, they were looking for a way to kill him. They could see it. Look forward to verse 19. They knew he had spoken this parable against them. And so when you read this story, it shouldn't come as a surprise. At some point, there is a logical progression of this conflict of authority that leads to a crisis of decision where the stakes become a matter of life and death. And the question really then comes to all of us, the people who are hearing this, who is in control of your life? Who is the owner of yourself and all that is within you? You've got to make a decision. And are there consequences? Consequences? You better believe it. There there are consequences that are wrapped up in, again, another rabbinical question that Jesus asks. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them, to those who reject his rightful place in their lives? He he will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. A thought like that makes me pause when I think of the way I share the gospel with those who haven't made up their mind about Jesus. 
if you're anything like me, I have tended to make it an appeal, kind of begging of this person to consider Jesus Christ. Oh, please, please, please let Jesus into your heart. And then you'll find your life to be so much more satisfying and fulfilling, which is all true. But there's an even deeper truth embedded in this, a truth to be told that Jesus really doesn't need your vote in order to be Lord. He already is the Lord. And until you willingly bow before him, you are living in cosmic rebellion. Take that as a thought. Now, I I want to pause for just a moment here because some may view God in all of this as cruel and Jesus as being brutal when in fact what we have here is a portrait of the balance between grace and the righteousness of God. He is gracious. Note this in the story. In the face of rejection, God persists and persists and persists. He keeps coming sending one servant after the next, servant after servant after servant, only to be rebuffed and insulted. And the beatings do not stop until he finally sends his son. I love the way Charles Spurgeon, a pastor of an earlier century, wrote, he said, if you reject him, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem. If you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. Jesus is love made manifest. Now I say that to put all this into perspective. Because I I realize there are some who in reading this or hearing this realize that they have been resisting God's claim in their lives. You've resisted in the past, and you are resisting even now, and yet his love keeps coming and coming and coming because he is persistent. He loves you. He is love manifest. But there does come a time when he comes again, and it will be too late. Do you understand what I'm saying? Did those who heard Jesus understand what he was saying? Look at their response. The fact is they do. Immediately in verse 16, when the people heard this, they said, oh, may that never be true of us. May we be the ones to receive that son that was sent, the heir of God. May it never be. Did they get it? You better believe it. Were they aware of the consequences of rejecting God's ownership over life? Absolutely. Did it shake them up? You better believe it. So now what happens? In verse 17, Jesus looks directly at them and asks a question. Okay, if you're with me on this, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls in that stone will be broken into pieces, but he upon whom it falls will be crushed. Now, do you remember what I said last week about the way Jesus leaves questions hanging in the air for leaders to answer for themselves, like he did in verse 8. He does the same thing here with the crowd at large. They had just woken up to the consequences of their own spiritual decision. And it would be over one who was being rejected, uh, but, but was in fact the only one qualified to be the, the headstone. And, and so Jesus is laying out the simplicity of a solution for them. Accept the capstone. Don't reject it. 
This little verse that Jesus gives here about the rejected stone becoming the cornerstone or the capstone was in fact a quotation from Psalm 118. An important quotation because it had been ringing in the people's ears for hours and even maybe days. In verse 22 and 23, we have in, verse, uh, uh, in Psalm 118, if you have your Bibles, just turn over there, you will find that this is the psalm that the people were singing in Passover, coming into the temple each and every day. Open the gates of righteousness, we read in 19. I will enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I will give thanks to thee, for thou hast answered me, and thou hast become my salvation. They were singing this song. This is a Passover song that they sang in preparation to come into the temple to worship. At that particular point in time, they've been singing this, and then we have the words right there. The stone with the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech thee. They had been singing this and singing this and singing this. This cornerstone had been there. They had been calling upon it. And suddenly, as they're standing there, they are looking at the cornerstone himself. They would have to make a choice. They had been prepared for the choice. They had been praying for the choice. And now came the moment for them to make the choice whether or not he was going to become the cornerstone of their own lives. (laughs) Architecturally, this capstone, this keystone, was the most important piece of any building. You could take out any other stone in, a, in, in the structure and that building would still stand. Maybe a little cockeyed, but it would still stand. But take out the capstone and the cornerstone and the building would fall like a house of cards. And Jesus stands before them saying, the cornerstone that was rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And this is to be marvelous in your eyes. And having laid out all of the opportunity for decision, he leaves the question hanging in the air for the people to make an answer for themselves. And ultimately, as we look at it, it becomes a choice that we have to make ourselves as well. A choice we have to be able to make. No one can do it for you. But ask yourself this. Will will you open your heart to him and let him assume the rightful role in your life? to build your life upon him as he gives stability, as he becomes the rock, the foundation, the cornerstone, the source of life, and and the source of fruitfulness as he becomes the Lord of your life. It is up for every single one of us to make up our mind. The Lord already owns the title to your property. Will you honor him? with surrender. The Lord has already determined the scope of your rights and what, in fact, builds you into what he has intended you to be from the very beginning of time. Will you follow him and follow him alone? 